Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, thanks, Mick. God's good, eh? Tristan and Carla have every reason to celebrate God's goodness this morning. And I was only, uh, I saw through the week, Tristan, you had extra reason to celebrate with some epic waves that uh, God provided. Our coastline this week was uh, hit with some waves that we don't see so often on, on this stretch of coastline. And I happened to see a photo of Tristan on some incredibly overhead surf. <laughs> I thought that was timely for you to celebrate. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we're looking at uh, the book of James. We started... Um, started that last week and we we're looking at the testing of our faith in trials and uh, very timely for me I had an accident Friday at work I fell through some deck joists and peeled the skin off my shin bone and that's uh, why well, I've got my leg up so excuse me but so looking at uh, this morning last week it was the testing of our faith by trials and this morning in James, at chapter 2, the first half, we're looking at the testing of our faith by loving others. So we'll read uh, James chapter 2 from verses 1 through to 14. Uh, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So last week, as Eugene said, the purpose of this letter challenges us to see if our faith is genuine. And last week we were looking at the testing of our faith by trials and we're looking this morning at the testing of our faith by loving others. So we saw last week that 
The James that wrote this letter was the half-brother of Jesus. And it's one of the most practical books in the New Testament. It offers uh, instruction and exhortation to Christians who are experiencing problems, as all of us do. And James had at first rejected Jesus as Messiah in uh, John chapter 7, when uh, speaking of Jesus, it says, for even his brothers did not believe in him, but later they believed. And uh, um, Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection, and this convinced James that Jesus truly was the saviour, and he in turn shared his knowledge of Jesus to his brothers. And he became a key leader in the church uh, in Jerusalem. Paul calls him a pillar in Galatians chapter 2. And this word pillar is the word stoulos, meaning a column supporting the weight of a building. And it's used metaphorically of those who, are, who bear responsibility in churches as of the elders in the church at Jerusalem. And James led the church in Jerusalem during a very difficult time. It was a time of transition. We read in Acts 21, there were many myriads of Jews there who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. And they were believers, the early believers were saved people, but they were still in the shadows of the law. And James wrote to the Jews living outside the land of Palestine. They had been scattered from Jerusalem because of Israel's sin, the people had been driven from their native land and they were now dispersed around the countries surrounding the Mediterranean. And the letter was not intended for one specific church, but it was to be passed amongst, um, around among the various local churches. As you read through the epistle of James, you soon discover that James says it how it is. He doesn't muck about or sugarcoat anything our walk must show our faith and some of the things that were issues among the Christians at the time they were going through difficult testings they were facing temptations to sin some of the believers were catering to the rich some were being robbed by the rich some were competing for places in the church particularly that of teaching one of the major issues in the church was a failure on the part of many to live what they professed to believe, to talk, not just to talk the talk, but walk the walk. The tongue was a serious problem. Worldliness was a problem. When we think through these things, some of them are familiar, aren't they? So James is writing an instruction on faithful Christian living and Eugene just mentioned this word last week in chapter 1, the thought of spiritual maturity, I think, was on James's mind as well. James uses the word perfect several times in chapter 1 and 2, and then in three, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. And uh, as was mentioned last week, this word perfect means mature or complete. So in chapter 3, verse 2 in James, where he says a perfect man, he does not mean a sinless man, but 
rather one who is mature, balanced, grown up. So we saw in chapter 1 also that the testing of our faith produces patience and testing is essential in Christian maturity. Abraham had to be tested when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. God tested Abraham in order God tested Abraham in order to give Abraham an opportunity to show his true character. And Eugene told us last week that our faith is like this spiritual muscle that needs strengthening and developing. And God is looking for this spiritual maturity in us as Christian men and women. And as I think of faithful living, this for, for me has involved examining my own heart to see where I am in the Christian life. I need to honestly examine my life in the light of God's word. And I love the practical nature of this book. Last week we saw uh, in chapter 1, James compares the Bible to a mirror. As I study God's word, I see myself as I really am, like looking into a mirror. But James warns us to be honest about what we see, not just merely glance and then walk away. We must obey what God teaches us. There can be no selective obedience, as we'll look at a little bit later in the verses we've read. And this can be difficult because it can involve a cost. In, J in chapter 1 we saw also James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. The easy part is to sit here in the comfort of our company here and to read the scriptures together, to study the word together, but it's much more difficult come Monday and through the week to practice what we've learnt, to be doers of the word. Do I practice the truth as a Christian? Do I live my faith as a Christian? Hearing God's word and doing and sorry, hearing God's word and talking about God's word can never substitute for doing God's word. That's the challenge for us. What sort of witness am I to those that I work with? For me, this is who I rub shoulders with on the building site. This is who I, how I conduct myself uh, in industry meetings, for example, with peers. It's how I conduct myself with my clients. How, what sort of witness am I to the people that I deal with every day? Do they see a person who is honest in their dealings, a person of integrity? So in chapter one, uh, sorry, in chapter two from verses one to 13, we look at the question of how we treat other people. We look at the condemnation of partiality and we look at the testing of our faith by loving others. And this morning as we look closer at these verses, I want to look at a number of Bible passages and verses as examples of how we can practically apply and live out what James is saying to us in these verses. So from verse 1 to 13, 
of what we read, it denounces the practice of showing respect of persons. Proverbs tells us to show partiality is not good. And when we think of the attributes of God, his characteristics, when we think of what God is like, we might think of his holiness or his love or his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his faithfulness, and the list goes on. But there's another attribute of God that we don't often talk about, although it's mentioned a lot in scripture, and that is God's impartiality. God is absolutely and totally impartial in dealing with people. No favourites. But if I'm honest with myself, this is so foreign to me. I can be very partial. I can put people into boxes or categories. It's just built into my fallenness or my sinful state. And you know what I mean. We judge someone by their looks. We might judge someone by their reputation. We might judge someone by their social status or by their profession. But God is not impressed with any of that at all. The truth is, it is of no consequence to him whatsoever when it comes to the matter of evaluating the worth of a person's soul. Samuel uh, 16 verse 7 tells us, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And James is very specific and direct in his exhortation and instructions. And this is one of the tests that James gives us to see if we stack up to determine if our faith is real. What is our reaction to the poor? What is our reaction to the needy? In verse 1, he starts, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. The literal, transa the literal translation reads, my brothers, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, by showing favouritism. Saying that I hold the faith of Jesus Christ and at the same time showing partiality is contradictory. You can't hold the Christian faith and hold alongside it partiality. In verse 2, he goes on, For if there should come, this is the example he gives in verse 2, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit there at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now it would seem incredible that anyone would act this way to be swayed by the appearance of riches but before we discount it looking into our own heart do we find that we might occasionally make some class distinction it's easy to come under the influence of the world's view of money it's in our face 24 7 we're bombarded with it um, i've had the opportunity to visit countries in Africa, Kenya and Ethiopia a couple of times and I'm convinced that our Western world's biggest problems stem from material, materialism and the pursuit of wealth. 
we can get this distorted view. The world has this distorted view of riches. Um, but how does it compare with what God's word teaches? The world says, for example, the world says money and riches brings freedom. But in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, teaches us that the desire for money can be enslaving and lead to destruction. Only Christ brings true freedom. The world says money brings security. But last week in chapter 1 of James, we read that worldly wealth is very insecure. It will quickly pass away. And in Timothy as well, we read that real security is found in knowing and trusting God. The world says money is what matters, but we know from scripture that Christ and the kingdom of God are what matters. The world says money is power, but in Acts we read that power comes from being filled with the spirit. The world says money establishes not only your net worth, but your, but your worth as a person. But in John 3 and 16 in Ephesians, we're taught it teaches us your worth is based on what God says, not what our bank statement says. The world says money and riches makes you successful, but we know that God's word teaches that success comes from knowing and doing what God says. And the world says that money gives you options, but we read in Ephesians that it is God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. The world says money and riches brings happiness. But the Bible teaches that lasting joy comes from knowing God. The world says money is your possession. Spend it on whatever you want. But we know from God's word that all that we have is God's to do with as he pleases and we're merely managers of his possessions and no doubt you can think of many more but James is saying to these Christians you know what some of you are guilty of showing favoritism to the rich and the world's view of money or riches can distort our view of people but favoritism is so foreign to the nature of God God is absolutely impartial so if we have a closer look at the examples of Jesus and his impartiality, he is so impartial. The fact that God loves the world and that Christ died for it shows us if God and, grace, if God and Christ can show grace and mercy without favouritism, so should we as believers. Consider the example of Jesus in Matthew 22 even his enemies admitted, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Consider the non-elite people included in his genealogy. If you read from Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 16 and read Jesus' genealogy, amongst them are Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite woman, you might remember the story, in Genesis 38 and she posed as a prostitute to seduce Judah then there's also Rahab who was a Gentile and a prostitute there's Ruth and she wasn't an Israelite but a Moabite 
There's also Bathsheba. She was Uriah's wife who committed adultery with David. And these, all these women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. It really shows us how God's grace forgives the darkest of sins. To think that God can lift the lowest and place them in royal lineage is pretty amazing, isn't it? Consider his choice of the humble village of Nazareth as his residence for 30 years. Nazareth was the location of the Roman garrison in the northern Galilee. Those who lived there were suspected of compromise with the enemy, but Jesus chose this as his place of residence. Consider his willingness to mix with those in Galilee and Samaria, both regions that were held in contempt by Israel's leaders. He didn't look at the outward appearance, he looked at the heart. He was not impressed with riches or social status. I love the example of the widow in Mark's Gospel who gave her two mites. She was greater in his eyes than the rich Pharisee who boastfully gave his large donation. And I saw a picture of this firsthand in Africa and I'll never forget this. I was visiting a place uh, in rural Africa uh, doing some building work and um, we were in, uh, in uh, Kenya and we were out or sort of on the edge of Lake Victoria in, in the hill area, reasonably remote. And our ho host, Samson, had asked us to split into groups uh, to go out into the hills and visit the various churches on this uh, particular Sunday that were there. And it was really something special. After 30 minutes or so of walking through the hills, we arrived at this building, which was really only just this rickety framed shed with rusty iron walls and rusty iron roof sheets. And it seated perhaps 50 or 60 people on, on very basic bench seats. But people had walked for hours to come to church as is quite the norm for them. But this particular Sunday was special as word, as word had got around that there were white people or Mazungus as they call us were visiting. And I recall as we approached this church, uh, the, the offering box had been put at the front door so that you could put your offering in on the way into church. And when all the men were in and were seated, and we, we had our places of seats at the front, the offering box was brought in and then the women started to come in through the, uh, the back of the church and the back filled up and then there was standing room only. But the pastor paused in his welcome to allow the women to come forward with their offering. So it became apparent to me that the men came through the front door and the women came in afterwards through the back. So the women had their opportunity to bring their offering through the service with this offering box at the front and as they came forward you could hear the tinkle of the coins as they went into the, to the box. But then lastly this elderly woman came forward and she knelt at the front 
and placed this small bag of grain at the offering box, which was her offering. And I remember thinking of the verse in Mark chapter 12 where the widow came and threw in the two mites. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who gave to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And you know, as I approached that church on that Sunday morning, I did put in my wad of notes into the box, but I didn't do it out of any pretension. I did it because there was an obvious need. But the beautiful thing is that about this is that God saw this elderly woman's grain as nothing less of an offering. Jesus saw potential in the lives of sinners and I love this story in John chapter 4. When you have the opportunity, read it to refresh your memories. John chapter 4 verses 1 to 38 is a great example where Jesus speaks with the woman at the well of Sychar. Without reading it all now, you may recall that the disciples came to Jesus and marvelled that he'd talked with this sinful woman. But Jesus didn't see her as the sinful woman. He saw her as an instrument for reaping a great harvest. Because if you read the story to the end, you might recall that the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Jesus saw the potential in this woman and saw her as an instrument for reaping a great harvest. Do you ever find yourself guilty of judging people by their past and not their future? Jesus was the friend of sinners, though he disapproved of their sins. What the world sees in people, how we dress, how many material possessions we have, my place in society, this means nothing to God. Can you just imagine how different the world would be if we viewed everyone through the eyes of Christ? So how can we practice the example of Jesus in our everyday? We can look at everyone through his eyes, try to see people as Jesus sees them. In verse 5, James goes on to say, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So James goes on to explain their preferential treatment was wrong. He points out their inconsistencies. James is pointing out in these verses as well, James is pointing out God's choosing. And this involves the grace of God. And salvation is not on the basis of merit. God has chosen to use Poor people who are rich in faith to advance his kingdom. Those who love him and obey him is what it says will inherit the kingdom. And this inheritance that James talks about here 
means more than entering the kingdom. It also involves ruling with Christ. In 2 Timothy 2, it tells us if we endure, we shall also reign with him. And we saw last week in chapter 1, we are to endure the testing of our faith. In verse 12 of 1, it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God promises the kingdom to those that love him, not to those that love the world and its riches. So it's ridiculous for me as a Christian to favour a rich person and to look down on the poor person. Quite simply, it means that I'm dishonouring a man or a person whom God, God honours. And this verse tells us that God has chosen poor people, the poor people of this world, those that are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those that love him. And if you break that verse down, they're God's elect, they're chosen, they're God's elite, they're rich in faith and they're heirs of God, heirs of the kingdom. And, and lovers of God, it says, to those that love him. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. And the footnote of this particular verse says that the wise refers to the Greek philosophers, the mighty refers to the influential, politically powerful people, and noble includes all of the aristocratic upper classes. So interestingly, the Corinthians came from the lower classes. And James, also James says it's foolishness to show favouritism to the rich because they're the ones who are constantly guilty of oppression. James says they oppress you and drag you into the courts. These are the very ones who characteristically oppress the people of God and James also says, why favour them when they blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? I keep coming back to all that God has done for me in Christ is what James is reminding us of here. God saves us completely on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross and not because of anything that I have or that I've done. And there are many examples and references in Scripture. In Acts chapter 10, Peter says when preaching to the Gentile household of Cornelius, he says, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And in Ephesians 6, verse 9, God ignores social differences when speaking about masters and slaves. He says, and you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. James is saying to us in these verses, if we really believe in God's grace, it forces us to relate to people on the basis of God's plan and not on the basis of human merit or social status.
excuse me, and James goes on in verse 8 to address from verses 8 to 11 to address their disregard or their violation of the law. In verse 8 he says, If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Verse 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So this royal law is the law of love. In Leviticus 19 it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. And also in Leviticus 19 it says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honour the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your brother. And James is alluding to this verse which prohibits favouritism to either the poor or the rich. So if you love your neighbour as yourself, Jesus identified this as one of the only uh, sorry, Jesus identified this as only one of two commandments that, if kept, would fulfil all of the law. That's in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Matthew 22, that is, verses 37 to 40. John MacArthur says this, and uh, to me it's a real nugget, as Terry often says, and I quote, So this is the kind of love that fulfils the whole law. In fact, you can take the second half of the Ten Commandments in a sense and just set them all aside and just live by this one law if you are faithful to this one law. I don't need a law that says do not murder if I treat everyone the way I treat myself. I'm not about to kill myself. I don't need a law that says don't cheat and lie and commit adultery and so on. I'm not going to defraud myself so I'm not going to defraud you. I'm not going to steal from myself so I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to make things difficult for my relationships so I don't want to do that to yours either. MacArthur goes on to say the point is if we understand this law, it becomes a supreme law of all human relationships. The first of those laws that the Lord mentioned in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, that takes care of the first half of the Ten Commandments, which have to do with God. If I love him with all my heart, soul and mind, I'm not going to have a graven image I'm not going to make an idol. I'm not going to take his name in vain. I'm not going to violate the worship experience with him. So these two things sum everything up. 
end of quote. So I guess you could ask, who is my neighbour? And you know the story well, but I'll just read a section of it to you to remind us in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. This sums up what James is saying here so well. Luke 10 from verse 30, Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbour to him who fell among thieves? And he said, that is the lawyer, he who showed mercy. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So who is my neighbour? The point that Jesus is making is when you come across someone with a need, take care of them like you would take care of yourself. That is the kind of love Jesus is talking about. It's easy to make excuses, I'm too busy, someone else will take care of it. Or maybe this person is not really my neighbour. And it's interesting that when the lawyer asked this question of Jesus, who is my neighbour, it was an attempt by him to limit the demands of the law by suggesting that some people are neighbours while others are not. The lawyer was looking for minimal or selective obedience while Jesus was looking for absolute obedience. And James is telling us here that there is no such thing as selective obedience with God. You can't choose to obey parts of the law that are to our own liking and disregard others. In verse 8, James says... If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. The word well means excellently, you're doing excellently. So another way we could say this is a Christian does excellently when he or she fulfils the law of love. But in verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. These people would have known that the law of God forbids partiality. The word sin, hamartia, is to fall short of the mark, to miss the mark. And transgressor is to go beyond the limits or one who oversteps the prescribed limit. Both of them define sin. You commit sin, that is, you fall short of the target. You are transgressors, that is, you've stepped out of line. He says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. It's pretty heavy stuff by James. If you think 
of it like that. You only need to break one law to be a lawbreaker. You only need to break one law to be a transgressor. Commit one sin and you're a sinner. And verse 11 goes on to say, For he, refers to God, who said do not commit adultery, also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The fact that these two sins are mentioned by James is interesting, adultery and murder, both of which required the death penalty. Perhaps James is reinforcing the seriousness of this sin of partiality. But we shouldn't be confused as to why James presses the matter of the law on believers. We know as Christians that we don't live under the law, we live under grace. William MacDonald says this, which is helpful. Nine of the ten commandments are repeated in the epistles. The only one that is not repeated is the one concerning the Sabbath. Nowhere are Christians ever told to keep the Sabbath or seventh day of the week, for that commandment is ceremonial rather than moral. The nine commandments, which are repeated in the epistles, are not given as law, but as instruction in righteousness for the people of God. He goes on to say, God says, I have saved you by my grace. Now I want you to live a holy life out of love to me. And if you want to know what I expect of you, you'll find it in the New Testament. There you will find nine of the Ten Commandments repeated, but you will also find the teachings of the Lord Jesus which actually call for a higher standard of conduct than the law required. So in verse 12, James goes on to say, So speak, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. One thing that we can be sure of is that our works will be judged and rewarded. We will all appear at the judgment seat of Christ where our life will be evaluated to determine our reward. Our words will be judged. Our deeds will be judged. In Colossians 3 we read, For whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of, in of the inheritance. For you, saw you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there will be no partiality. So all work done to the honour of Christ will bring an eternal reward. And our attitudes will be judged. In verse 13, James contrasts two attitudes, showing mercy to others and refusing to show mercy. But it's love and mercy that will bring triumph at the judgment seat. So in conclusion, James is testing us here in these verses. And one of the tests of the reality of our faith is how we treat other people. And our beliefs should control our behaviour. It's a challenge 
to examine my life. Is my life characterised by impartiality? Do I love my neighbour as myself? Do I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that God is gracious? Do I really believe his word is true? Do I believe that one day he will judge me? Because if I believe all of these things, they should control my behaviour. Let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word and we ask that you would help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. As we look at your word, a mirror giving us a, a real picture of who we are, help us to be honest about what we see. Help us to examine our hearts. God, as we think of your grace, help us to be gracious. As we think of your love, help us to be loving. And Lord, as we think of your example to us, help us each to desire to, to live our lives by your example. We thank you again, God, for your goodness and for your, uh, your word this morning. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.